How are you this morning? I'd like to see if you're paying attention a little bit, you know? Hey, I don't know if you're aware of this. We don't always mention it in the 11 o'clock service, but we're actually one church in two locations, and so we want to welcome into our service Lake Hills Church downtown meeting at Brazos Hall. That's a really, really cool thing that God's doing down there that we get to be a part of as one church in two locations. I want to just ask you this morning a quick question. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? It's January the 26th today, but how many of you made a resolution? Let me just see a show of hands if you made one. I'm not asking if you've dropped it, but you made it, okay? <clears throat> I ask you that question because this week we passed a monster milestone in the life of our New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you're aware of this, but social scientists tell us that in order for something to become a habit, it has to be repeated 21 times. So if you made a resolution at the beginning of this year, then when we went past January the 21st, you kind of made a huge step towards keeping or maybe not keeping your resolutions for the new year. Now, I want to make sure that you understand if you have maybe slipped up, all hope is not lost. As a matter of fact, this weekend, as we continue the message series, Grit, we're going to talk about specifically how do you keep those New Year's resolutions. I want to ask you, if you will, take out the program that you got when you came in this morning, it looks like that, and open it up. And I want to just remind you very quickly of the definition of grit. We, we talked about this a little bit last week, but it's important. When I use the word grit, some of us think about John Wayne and an eye patch. Um, some of us think maybe the more recent version of the movie True Grit. I don't know if you're aware of this, but True Grit was actually a book. It was written by Charles Portis. I never knew this until I was in the ninth grade. I was going down the reading list that Mrs. Nickel gave us in ninth grade English. And I saw all of the, you know, the kind of trifling stuff, you know, Shakespeare and Dickens and all that kind of trash. When I got to the part where I saw True Grit was on our reading list, I knew I was going to love being in Ms. Nichols' English class. But grit, in our context, goes far beyond a classic Western novel or movie. Grit, in the context of where we are as people, not only in this year, but in our relationship with Christ, grit goes much, much deeper. The word grit, I kind of specifically chose, and we've used it as an acrostic to define itself. So just on your notes page right here, just write down the word grit. Just write down the left-hand side, just at the very, very top, kind of small. The word grit just means biblically God-honoring, relentless, intentional tenacity. God-honoring, so you got a hyphenated word there, relentless, intentional tenacity. If you're going to make something stick, whether it's a commitment or a resolution, you're going to need some grit. And this weekend, as we continue our series, we're in the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 3, where Daniel's closest friends, his compadres, all the way back to the very beginning of their enslavement in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, find themselves confronted with an incredible, incredible 
dilemma. They've got a very real moral dilemma on their hands because if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, Babylon at that time was the most powerful nation or empire on the planet, and it was ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Throughout this series, we've kind of taken to affectionately referring to him as King Nebi. And King Nebi was prone to fits of incredible pride, incredible ego, and had these moments where he decided that he was going to live as though he actually was the most powerful person on the planet. And in Daniel chapter 3, we have one of those moments where Nebuchadnezzar erected this massive gold idol to himself. And he erected this 90-foot tall golden idol and commanded that everyone in Babylon should worship at the dedication of this idol. Now, pride is a funny thing. How how many of you know that that pride is, is, is one of those things that I would suggest to you, pride is kind of like bad breath. Everybody knows who has it except the person who has it. Isn't that interesting? I, in, in all of my years of ministry, I've, ne- I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm really struggling with so-and-so, or this particular habit or sin in my life is eating my family alive. Can you help me? Can, can you pray with me? I've never had anyone come to my office or or come to me personally and say, Pastor, I'm just really struggling with pride. I'm just as selfish as the day is long, and I need some help. I've I've never said that to somebody. Pride's one of those things that I think we all understand. Now, whatever challenge or sin or struggle you wrestle with, pride is a real challenge. I worry about the people who don't wrestle with the issue of pride. You know, pride for me showed up at a very, very young age. I remember when I was in about the third grade. I think I said earlier the second grade, but I think the third grade, I was playing tackle football for the first time in my life. And I remember one game from that third grade year. My parents had invited my third grade girlfriend to come to the game. I didn't even know she was coming. Apparently they were working on an arranged marriage or something early. <clears throat> and so I just remember at some point going, whoa. She's here, and this, this was very, very basic, fundamental football. There was no scoreboard on the field, no clock. The referees kept the timer and the score, and sure enough, we came down to the last play of the game, and our team was down by three points. And in third grade tackle football, the coach is on the field with the players, and they huddled up, and coach got us in this huddle for the last play of the game, and coach said, all right, Here's the deal. We're going to run a reverse to Richard. And I was like, man, that's awesome. And I said, coach, what's a reverse? And he explained the diagram and the play and where everybody was going to go. And sure enough, the ball snapped. And I came back around the end and took the reverse handoff and ran the length of the field for the winning touchdown in the third grade. It was the peak of my athletic career. But in the third grade on that football field with my girlfriend in attendance, as all 15 people in the crowd went crazy wild, I remember standing there in the end zone and thinking to my third grade self, I am the man. I I have arrived. Now, you don't necessarily have to raise your hand, but 
Have you ever had a moment where you thought, man, I've got it going on. I, I'm just wondering, as a mom, maybe you kind of just had a parenting moment. You just went, man, I just smoked that little kid. I don't know what. It's just unbelievable. Have you ever had one? I mean, pride is something we all get. Go back to the original sin with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve ate fruit from the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from, it wasn't the fruit that was the sin. It was Adam and Eve choosing to think that they knew better than God. Choosing to think that God was maybe holding out on them and they could take a shortcut to the good life. That's what really was going on. Remember, Satan told Eve, no, 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 no. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows that when you eat from that, you'll be like him. And as I look at my life and I look at the patterns that I've tried to move on from or from sins that I've tried to let go, I have to admit to myself that I can connect with Eve in a very real way. You know, the Apostle Paul understood what this was like. Paul said, you know, the the sin that I don't want to do, that's the exact thing that I do. The sin that I, or, or the good that I want to do, that's the very thing that I don't do. So when we wrestle with these patterns, when we wrestle with the ride of pride, we're in some very good company. And King Nebuchadnezzar certainly rose to this challenge. Nebuchadnezzar said, all of Babylon will bow down and worship this idol. And if they don't, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Yeah. Which presented Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with this moral dilemma that I referenced earlier. Because they worshipped the one true God. They knew that to bow down and to worship this idol was to compromise their beliefs, their faith relationship with God. Now you and I, in 2014, we, we look at this and say, that is so primitive. Who would ever bow down to a 90-foot tall structure that is just so bc and to be sure it is but you know truth be told idols are not foreign to us idols are are something that i think we can all connect with on one level or another an idol is just something that replaces or acts as god in our lives That's what an idol is. If you'll remember at the beginning of the series, we went all the way back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Remember, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism said that the chief end of man, the reason you and I even exist, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But anytime we glorify something other than God or someone other than God, then we've erected an idol in our own lives. That's just kind of there. I mean, think about this. How many of you are not married? Let me see a show of hands. If you are single, maybe you're a student, maybe you're divorced, whatever, that's cool. Okay, listen. Some of you are thinking subconsciously or maybe even consciously, if I could just find the right guy, then I would be happy. Or maybe you're dating somebody right now and you're thinking, If I could just change this guy, if I could get him down the aisle, then I could change him, and then I'll be happy. 
It's interesting. Scientifically, those who just laughed are those who are married. <laughs> if you didn't laugh, you're like, what's wrong with that? It sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> Guys, you're thinking, man, if I, if I could just find a woman, a, a, a woman who, who had the, the morals of Mother Teresa and the appearance of Kate Upton, if I could just <laughs> find that woman, then I would be happy then you can just know that that's an idol. A person cannot withstand that kind of pressure. You see, when we talk about making and keeping commitments or resolutions, the fact of the matter is we cannot do it on our own. As a matter of fact, with, with passion and joy, but also compassion and enthusiasm, tell your neighbor right now, you can't do it. Just tell you, you can't do it. We, we tried the willpower approach. December 31st, I'm, this year, I'm doing it. But here's the reality. Our worship determines our power. I'm going to say that again. You need to write that down. Our worship determines our power. What you worship will determine the power with which you approach and engage everything. Now, some of you may be thinking, whoa, 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 preacher boy. You're kind of jumping the gun a little bit. You've got the worship cart before the horse. I'm not even in on the God thing yet. I'm kicking the tires. I'm checking it out. And I hope and pray we always have a ton of people just like you who are a part of Lake Hills Church. But... May I just suggest to you, or just invite you maybe to open your mind to the possibility that everybody worships something. Everybody. We're born worshipers. We're created worshipers. There's something that you will place your affections on. There is someone that you will prioritize above everyone else. It may be yourself. It may be another person. It may be pleasure or fun or hanging out. It may, be, it may be prestige. It may be power. I, I know people that have said, man, if I could just build enough power, enough stroke, prestige, that is an idol in your life. Anything that replaces God, anything that acts as the number one priority, sole position of number one in your life is an idol. And the reality is that no idol can withstand the pressure of worship. No idol can withstand that. Only God is worthy of worship. As a matter of fact, the word worship means worthyship. It means worthiness, worth your life, worth your affection, worth your priorities. And our worship determines our power. What we worship determines the amount of power that we bring to bear in every part of life. So how do we keep those commitments that we make? For those of us who are married, for those of us who have made a commitment to a local church, for those of us who have made a commitment to a particular calling and work, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us exactly how to get that done. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebi has issued this decree. Anybody who doesn't bow down to this 90-foot tall idol will be thrown in the fiery furnace. And look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That's strong, isn't it? I mean, that right there, you talk about just dealing with it right up front. I want you to just take a second and put yourself in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's sandals. Just, just put yourself in and think about what that moment had to have been like. You, you know the consequences of your actions. But in their response, they show us how to keep a commitment. It begins by you and me when we choose to intentionally deliberate. We deliberate what we're going to worship. We, we think about it. We consider it. We deliberate and intentionally decide what we're going to worship. You see, what happens a lot of times in our lives is that we go along to get along so reactively for so long, we've never really considered what we worship. We've never really thought about why we do what we do. We go to school because we have to and graduate high school and maybe go get a job or, or maybe go to college and graduate from college and, and we start get out and we get a career, we get a job, we go to work and we go to work and then we go to work and then the next day we go to work and we just kind of go along to get along and then maybe, maybe one day we, we meet Mr. Hot or Miss Right and we get married and if God should lead we get kids and man then there are kids, it's awesome, there's this blessing and man they're expensive so we, we got to make a little bit more and so we just go on and on and we never deliberate, we never get intentional about what we're going to worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego deliberated. They knew what their number one priority was going to be. They knew that they were orienting their entire lives around the worship of the one true God, the only one who could withstand the weight of their worship. You know what happens a lot of times? We put that weight on other people. I've talked about what happens if you, you know, try to do that with somebody that you marry, but what about if your God, your idol, is your kid's happiness? That happens a lot. We think, man, whatever I do, I just, I just, I've got to raise happy, healthy kids, and then I can obliterate and erase my background and the mistakes my parents made. But when we do that, we set our kids up for incredible frustration, incredible pressure. Our kids were not born not created to withstand the weight of our worship. If the kids are the center of your universe, you're not doing your kids any favors. 
If another person is the center of your universe, then you can just know you're setting that person up for failure and frustration for everybody concerned. It's only God who can withstand the weight of our worship. God is the only one substantial enough in character, in holiness, in perfection to withstand the weight of our worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had deliberated about that. They had decided and chosen whom they would worship, and it would be God and God alone. Remember I told you about King Nebi and his attacks of pride? Well, in this particular instance, Nebuchadnezzar blew a gasket. I mean, he absolutely flipped out. Look at what the Bible says about how he responded. I just included this because I thought it was interesting. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. I mean, can you imagine that scenario? Here's the most powerful person on the planet. And these three little guys, these little captives, said, no, we're not bowing down. And he was just like, look, let me tell you something. And he just snapped. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. In verse 20, the Bible says that those who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, the furnace was so hot that they were consumed by fire. The guards who threw them in the fire burned up. I mean, this was a fire pit. This was an incredible furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped into the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar could not believe what happened. It's interesting that the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the furnace, heated seven times hotter than it had been before, and then watched, expecting them to just completely be consumed. And yet he watched and noticed something absolutely miraculous. Now, I, I know that a lot of people struggle with the miraculous. I know that a lot of people are like, well, I don't know. I, I get the whole do unto others as you would have them do unto you and be a good person. I'm cool with that. But the miraculous, and I understand that. I, I think that God's given us a brain and a mind, and so we ought to ask some hard questions. But if I could, just for a second, if you are a person who struggles with maybe skepticism, if I could just invite you to suspend your skepticism for a second, because we're talking about God, who we believe created everything. And so if God created the natural order, wouldn't it be just at least possible that he could intervene in that natural order or maybe suspend that natural order for his purposes and do something supernatural, kind of, kind of extraordinary? Well, that's exactly what happened here in Daniel chapter 3, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not consumed like those guards were. Look at what happened. Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar shouted. I love that. The king lost his cool. He said, look. Tell your neighbor, look. I see four men 
unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. What? Are you joking me right now? What, what are, we threw three men in the fire, but I'm watching right here in front of me, and there are four figures walking around unharmed in the fire. Now, there are many, many Old Testament scholars who believe that the fourth figure in the fire was actually Jesus. I fully believe that that's possible because we know that, yes, Jesus was not yet to be born as an infant, as a human being, for hundreds of years after this event, but we also know that Jesus is eternal. In John chapter 1, the Bible says that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus has always been. He just hadn't quite yet shown up in human form as he did during his earthly ministry. So the reality is Jesus could have been there in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's also possible that the fourth figure was an angel, a messenger from God. We don't know specifically, but we do know that there was somebody else there in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's here that I want to just kind of camp out for a second because it's here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us an example, not only to deliberate and to decide whom you're going to worship, but also to collaborate, to collaborate with God in the fire. Do not go through the fire by yourself. Do not decide... I got this, like your pastor did when I was in the third grade and I scored a touchdown. I'm the man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego collaborated. I like the word collaborate because it means to co-labor, to labor with God, to collaborate with him. I've said this before, but this is another opportunity to say it again. Never buy the lie that God won't give you more than you can handle. People say that all the time. Well, the Lord won't give you more than you can handle. And they're well-meaning. They're just wrong. God will absolutely allow more into your life than you can handle. Specifically for the purposes of inviting you to collaborate with him. To allow his supernatural power to carry you through the fire. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what it is that you're dealing with or what you maybe have dealt with. But I do know that God loves you too much to leave you in the fire alone. He never promised to make sure that you never go through the fire. But he promised you would never have to do it alone. Never. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, says the God of hosts. This is what he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is what he does for you and me. He is with us in the fire. We know this from this story. We also know this because of who Jesus is. It's amazing to me when you think about 
the fact that Jesus chose to become one of us when he was born as a human, to co-labor with us, Emmanuel, God with us. This is who he is, it's what he does. And so when we worship with him, when we collaborate with him, his power then becomes available to us. Then we're not just relying on our own willpower, on our own strength and courage and and intestinal fortitude. But we literally co-labor with God himself. But, but there's, there's one more thing that i got to share with you from this story. One more thing that I think is so, so incredible. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, the officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Now, you want to talk about supernatural? Let me tell you something. If I grill some steaks, I smell a smoke. Here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a fourth figure were actually in the fire itself. Not only were there, was their hair not singed, their clothes not burned, they didn't even smell of smoke. So, it's not just about us in the fire. It's not just about you personally deliberating and choosing whom you will worship. It's not just about you collaborating with God. It's also about us coming out of the fire and demonstrating, demonstrating the power of God in our lives, showing people, revealing his glory through the victories he gives us. We demonstrate his power when we come out of the fire. I have a very close friend who, if I told you his backstory, if I told you what his dad was like to him when he was growing up, you would just kind of go, whoa, how does he get up in the morning and tie his shoes? If I told you the way he treated him, the way he talked to him, the way he downgraded even after college, you'd be like, that guy's a walking miracle, the fact that he can even get up in the morning. But when I tell you that this friend of mine is one of the most joyful, life-giving, affirming, encouraging, challenging people I know, you just got to step back and go, yay, God. He doesn't even smell like smoke. I I can't even tell this guy's been through the fire. How does that happen? The supernatural power of God. The supernatural power of God demonstrated by somebody who has experienced it. See, a lot of times, we like to talk about the fire, don't we? We do. 
I remember when Julie first got pregnant with Emily, I noticed a pattern. We would tell people, we're pregnant. And there'd be this initial, oh, that's awesome. But then about, I don't know, roughly six or seven out of ten would say to Julie, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. My delivery was so awful. It was unbelievable. I actually died. <laughs> and every now and then, you'd hear somebody say, you know what? Yeah, delivery was, labor was tough, but it, man, you don't even, it's just unbelievable. The fact that you get to do that. Julie, six months pregnant, feels Emily kicking in her belly. And Julie looks at me and she goes, I'm so sorry you don't get to experience this. This is unbelievable. And I said, really, I'm good. <laughs> but when God does something for you, when God does something in you, demonstrate it. Let people see what he's done. He's moved you out of the fire, Jack. He's moved you out of the fire, Jackie. Demonstrate it. Let people see, look, no singe, no smoke. Demonstrate it. I think we need to remember sometimes, Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't have a bad day and decide to go to work the next day. He rose from the dead. I don't know what fires you come out of. I don't know what fire you may be in today. But I do know he's more powerful. I do know that God is bigger than your fire. I know that. Not because I read it in seminary or because it's on my outline this week. It's because I've lived it. I've seen God do it. He's bigger than your fire. I didn't make that up. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the fledgling church there in the city of Ephesus. They're this group of people that he kind of banded together and said, hey, we're going to be a church. Y'all come be a part of it. And so he's writing this letter back to them. And you can imagine the affection and the compassion that he has for them. And look at what he says. He says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or fire or anything else. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. His power is greater than any fire. Than any challenge. Than any sin. Than any struggle. Than any wound. Greater than any scar. His power 
is available to us who believe in him. Period. I kind of lovingly laugh when I hear people talk about Christians being soft. Those Christians, a bunch of kumbayars. They don't know the Christians I know. <laughs> they don't know the Jesus I know. He is greater. He is grittier than any power and any fire that ever was or ever will be. And he proved it in and through the cross. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved his power. He proved it. And in proving his power, and proving his God-honoring, relentless, intentional tenacity, he invited everybody into a relationship. You, personally. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would never perish, but would have eternal life. Now you and I read that and we think, oh, that's God so loved the world, and we think the cosmos but the world is you. The world is me. For God so loved you that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, whoever chooses to follow him in response to his grace would never die but would have eternal life. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I want to invite you to join me just in a moment of prayer. And in this moment of prayer, I want to ask you to not leave, to not be moving around for any reason, because this is holy ground. It's holy ground that we're on right now. And I want to ask nobody to distract anybody But just to consider that promise from God that God loves you so much that he gave his son for you so that if you believe in him, you would never die, but you would have life beginning right here, right now. If you're here today and you've never stepped over that line of trust and faith, then as a church, we want to invite you to do exactly that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment. In response to God's amazing grace, just pray silently right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God. Say, God, I need you.
I've deliberated. And so right now, I want to collaborate with you. I give you my life. I confess my sin and claim your forgiveness. And Jesus, I choose to believe that you rose from the dead for me. And I accept right now, once and for all. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain in a spirit of prayer for a moment because this is holy ground that we're on. When God moves in a person's life, that's sacred. And if God just did that in your life for the first time, you prayed that prayer and you meant it. I want to ask you especially, just for a moment, if you would, quietly but very intentionally and deliberately, if you would just raise your hand up over your head for a moment. Because as you raise your hand and your hand is up, I want to make sure that you understand why we do this. This is for you to mark this moment because it's the most important moment of your life. And there will come a follow-up moment where you will kind of wonder to yourself, was that real? Did that really happen? And I want you to remember that it really happened right here, right now, that God did that and you responded to his grace initiative once and for all. And because you responded, the Bible says that all of heaven celebrates that with you. That's a big deal. And so as a church, we celebrate that with you. You can put your hands down so that we put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.